Up next on Stack Overflow, Joel and Jeff discuss whether programmers should spend time working with customers, the value of Easter eggs, and how to define elegant code from IT Conversations. Hi, this is Phil Windley. Today I'm excited to bring you another great program from Stack Overflow with Joel Spolsky and Jeff Atwood here on IT Conversations. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. And now, here's Stack Overflow. Let's see if Jeff's in today. Hi, Joel. Hey, Jeff. Another exciting episode of our podcast. That, that's right. Only this one's not going to be so exciting. Boring. We're going to make this one boring. Yeah, it's like might as different. well. If you're a listener at home, just turn it off now. <laughs> Save yourself. Uh, oh, I have, I have something we should talk about on today's podcast. We should have okay. a section where we recommend gifts for geeks. You know, I've done that for the last two years on my blog, and I was kind of debating not doing it this year. Well, you can do it on the podcast, and then you won't have to do it on the blog. And that'll okay. solve that debate if you were on the fence. Okay. Did you want to start since it's your topic? Um, well, you know what? We want people to listen to this show, and it's going to be awful. So let's do that towards the end. Okay. That'll just be like um, what's the word? Teaser. A penalty for listening to the thing. <laughs> Your penalty for listening to the whole thing. <laughs> I swear to God, I was listening to Twit, and they said, um, HDMI cables, always a good gift. <laughs> if you've got somebody Are you serious? There. If you know somebody, I mean, you know, it's a good gift if you know somebody that has their DVD player or their, their game, their Xbox or something, plugged into the TV with one of those composite cables, like just a single... Right. Just one of the, let's do the one with the yellow RCA jack. Right. If nothing else, then you may want to get them an HDMI cable. That's pretty exciting. You could also get them like an Ethernet cable. Yeah, because they may not have that. Yeah, they may not have that. The cables, I think, make a great gift, particularly for women in your life, I think. <laughs> I think I love that. I forget jewelry. Oh, they love cables. Let me tell you. <laughs> and handbags. Yeah, just get them like pink cables, you know. So it's you know, then it's for the ladies. That's the guideline that I use when buying consumer products. If it's pink, it's for women, and that's how I know. Yeah. Otherwise, I'd have no idea. You know what I like to do? I go to Macy's, the ground floor, and you just look around at what 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 people are looking at. You find somebody in the demographic you want to buy a gift for, and you oh, that's a good technique. Follow them sort of like and you see what they're following what they're people around, over. and yeah. And if there's a particular not, handbag that they really like. You'd be like, hmm, okay, I know nothing about handbags, but this one caught your eye, so I'm getting it from my, my girlfriend. That's a good technique. Um, what are we supposed to talk about today, actually? Well, I can mention something that's actually Stack Overflow news. So uh, I, I oh. wrote a blog post about deciding to rent versus buy. And yeah, with the essentially, It is essentially now decided that we're going to buy because I actually bought some stuff. Um, <laughs> it's like, well, if you buy, then you get a new server delivered to your house that you can play with. Right. So I'm actually really, really excited about the server. Like, I'm probably a little too excited, actually, because it's the first time I've ever built up, like, a real, like, enterprise-class RAID array with the <laughs> hardware. And it's going to be really fun. I have all the drives sitting here. I'm just waiting for the server to arrive. And so that's my Christmas gift to myself, is the gift of building your own server. Wait, you, you have, when you say build enterprise-class RAID array, exactly what well, are you talking about there? Well, this is going to be RAID 10. Wow. Which is like beyond RAID 5. Wow, so that's basically, like double RAID 5. It's like double RAID 5. I, actually, I want to do a blog post about RAID because I'm kind of interested in all the different levels and when you would choose one for the other. But RAID 10 is, it doesn't have some of the limitations of RAID 5. The disadvantage is it takes more drives. And we're using six drives. So, But drives are so cheap because you just use you know commodity you know, SATA drives. I did buy the Enterprise uh, SATA drives, the ones that are supposed to last longer. I thought like RAID 10 years. you have to have... Um, you have to have a, a function. It has to be a power of four. No? No, I think it's three. I can be a three or six. I'm doing six. Oh, and okay. the penalty, there's a storage penalty. It's like if you only use three drives, it has to be really big drives. I thought RAID 10 was just mirroring plus, where you, 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 you mirror, mirroring plus striping. 
I believe it is. It's a combination of one and zero. That's why it's ten. Right. Sometimes they call it O one. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't so want to get too into the details right now because honestly, like I need to read up on it more. I know it's better than RAID five for sure. Everything I've read indicates that RAID ten is the way to go. It's the preferred solution, and we can do it on the on the Lenovo Think servers that we're getting. Okay, go RAID. There's yeah, um, the zero, which is where you just have two copies of everything, and that gives you some protection. And then there's one where you have striping, which puts the first four bits of every byte on one drive and the next four bits on the other drive. So you get better performance. You get double the performance, but at the risk that if one of them dies, then you lose everything. And so 10 is sort of a combination of both where you get the performance and the the striping benefits. Well, that is true. From the little that I've read about it, what you said is accurate. Okay, good. Because that's all I know. Yes. Ask me anything else and I just shut down. We also we, we found a provider that we think we like, and the, the advantage of this provider, I don't want to give any names yet because we're not 100% sure, but Wait, you mean they actually the, are in uh, like Corvallis. A- they're in Corvallis, Oregon, which is where Jeff Dalgas lives, another oh. member of the Stack Overflow team. It's the advantage is if something horribly wrong happens, and I'm going to buy extra parts. One, one thing that came out of the comments on that blog post was people said, oh, you've got to buy hot spares. Yeah. And I think I'm actually going to have they multiple can be cold spare spares. hard drives. Yeah, they can be yeah. cold. Well, I'll have multiple hard drives. Hard drives are cheap. That's a no-brainer to get those. Um, and I think we're going to buy one extra. We're getting a two, one 2U, like one really beefy server for the database. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'm going to get another 1U because those are really cheap. They're like six, 700 bucks. I mean, for bare bones. And then you add more memory. And, but those are super cheap. So I'll just get another 1U just to have around if we want to have like two web tiers or something like that. Or it can just be a hot spare. I'm not entirely sure yet. It's fun to buy. Boxes. Well, you and I had talked about this. I, I think what really attracts me to it, and you and I think alike on this, is like having control. Like it I really, just, is. I really it's all about need the control. control, full control over the hardware. And although I love our, our host has done a great job. I mean, really, I, I feel kind of mean doing this to, to Crystal Tech because they've been so nice to us. And we get such a great rate with them. But I think as this business concern moves forward, like I need very fine level of control. Just like I have a very fine level of control over the code. Right, that was the whole point of doing this versus using some CMS system. Mm-hmm. Uh, same thing applies to the hardware. It's like I want a really fine level of control, and I'm willing to accept the risk of something going wrong. With we the could hardware. have used PHPBB. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> just a, just a bulletin board with a skin and Stack Overflow skin. It's revolutionary. <laughs> yeah. So that's that's the one bit of, of Stack Overflow news. It's all about the control. You know what? I just reread this week because I hadn't read it in so long. George Orwell's 1984. You reread. Have you read that? What prompted you to do this? It's been a long time, and it's a classic. You know, it's the kind of book that if you haven't read it since. And I was thinking about when I read it. Nineteen eighty-four was pretty far off. In fact, I definitely remember being in the junior high school library reading that book, sitting in the library in junior high. Well, my school career was such that we read nineteen eighty-four in nineteen eighty-four, right? Oh. Well, it was the obvious thing to do. The year was nineteen eighty-four. Yeah. What do we read for English class? Well, you read George Orwell's 1984. But that doesn't follow, but okay. <laughs> what do you mean? It's the year that's on the book. <laughs> but, okay. I mean, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. But what prompted you to reread it? Did you feel I hadn't read it in a long time, and I was sort of, you know, it's such a, I mean, it really is a classic, and I had just forgotten what, what goes on in that book. Orwell was a great, great writer. He's got a lot of really great books. I mean, yeah. It's it's a classic for a good reason. So the, and, and yeah, the, the, well, the, what that reminds me of is there's all kinds of stuff that's in there. Like everybody always remembers Thought Police and Double Think and that kind of stuff, but there's a bunch of stuff in there that I had um, uh, forgotten. Like, uh, um, uh, for example, you were just talking about control. At, at the end, he's getting tortured. Uh, this, the main character, George Winston. I don't want to give anything away, but the Thought Police are just torturing the heck out of him, trying to convince him. Of whatever, and at some point he says, "What's the point? Why are you even bothering torturing me? Anymore? Just kill me. You're not going to get anything out of me. You're not. I'm not. I'm not turning in anybody. You know, I'm not giving you any information you can use. Why, why are you torturing me?" And he said, "That's what the whole thing. It's all about power. We just want power. We just like power. And it's not even me personally. It's the party. The party has to have the power. And that's what it's all about. It's all about having power. So when you buy your own servers, you have power. Now it's about having power over disturb- your server. Your story has disturbed me, and I'm I feel sorry. concerned." <laughs> Rewind. So the buying, your servers, buying your servers is like torturing people. That's oh, yeah. No, it's 
just the expression of power, which is something that, 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 that you know, and I'm going to go into an Ayn Rand mode where it's like, you know, mankind seeks power over things. I have never read The Fountainhead or any of that stuff. No, that's, that's pretty boring. I'm not going to read that again. That's not a real classic. I read that. Uh, you know, I read those books when I was doing a lot of, uh, I was in the army and I had to do a lot of waiting or just, just sitting around. And so right. my goal was to find the books that had the most, the most words per pound. So if I could find like a paperback with a really thin paper and, and a small font and a thousand pages, mm-hmm. that was the ideal book to carry around. So I went through all of James Mishner. I went through a couple of the big Ayn Rand books, um, Shogun, all those Clavel books, you know, the 1,300 pages, paperbacks. Just like, you know, and they're like, they're like the little paperbacks, you know, the pocketbooks. They're not what like about the, the uh, wait, wait, the L. Ron Hubbard stuff? The, uh, no, did not get into that somehow. <laughs> the Planet Earth stuff. I mean, yeah, I, okay, granted, there's the whole Scientology thing, which we won't talk about. Yeah, no, like, I never. Those books pretty giant as well. They, they were, they were, and I think uh, if, eventually, if I had had to do another, you know, term, I might have had to, another year of service. I might have, might have eventually gotten around to those. But uh, so being a soldier is a lot of just waiting around. That's consistent with what I've heard about it. Yep, hurry up and wait. It's called. Yeah, and if you're very unluckily punctuated by periods of extreme excitement that are probably yeah. profoundly scary if you're really unlucky <laughs> right so boredom yeah. would be a good path for a soldier yeah 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 boredom is a good thing there's a movie called the thin red line which everybody hated because it was so boring but right. uh uh after that i said you know i hated that because it was really boring but it was it was the most realistic portrayal of of infantry life that i've ever seen in a movie there were there were really some long scenes where it was just like a, an hour of guard duty. <laughs> and it, it's been an hour in the actual movie of screen time, portraying an hour of guard duty. Yeah, the thin red line, highly highly unrecommended. We're really off topic be... today. Oh, sorry. Well, let's let's start with some questions. You said Power you said you had some servers. good questions. Okay, so we got new new servers arriving. Yes, that's a good thing. Um, so we're going to do user questions first, or we're going to do favorite favorites from the from the site. No, let's do let's do questions first. Okay. Hi, Jeff and Joel. My name is Chris. I've been a software developer for about 16 years. Uh, it's often said that the uh, main job of a development manager is to insulate uh, the developers from uh, customers, users, managers, and so on. However, I've found that when I actually get to talk to customers and users, I learn a lot more about what the applications are supposed to do. What problems I have, what the real requirements are that I, you know, can't get from specs and other things like that. What do you guys think about uh, yep. how important it is for developers to actually have interactions with uh, their customers, the users, and other stakeholders? Thanks. Yeah, this question. The classic. Uh, there's a dilemma because on the one hand, people say, but on the other hand, and now we have a very simple rhetorical task in front of us to somehow coalesce these two ideas to somehow find the middle ground to say, you know, it's not one or the other. There's a middle ground in there. <laughs> no, I think, it's all, I think it's all one or the other. I think you should stop programming and just be full-time customer support. <laughs> programming is a waste of time. Wait, okay, wait a minute. That was, you were being ironic. Very poorly. Well, one thing I've read that I think makes sense is it's kind of like your tour in the army. Let's tie these two concepts together. Okay. You spent some time in the army, but yeah. you're not still in the army. That's so being right. in the army for a certain <laughs> period of time, <laughs> being in the army for a certain period of time taught you a lot of stuff. And I, but I've that doesn't mean it's I a really, good thing. I really enjoy all your army stories. They're great stories. I love them. But I'm sure you wouldn't be very happy if you were still in the army. <laughs> so maybe there's a period of rotation. I actually read an article about Amazon where – um, and oh, this yeah, has been a while ago. That. I don't know. Yeah, do it. But they yeah. actually did rotations. They would take programmers and they would do two or three weeks doing just nothing but support. And then they would, of course, go back to their regular programming jobs. How about something like that? I think it's a matter, it's still a matter, you do want to insulate the programmers because you really don't want them to be interrupted. You know, the, their ability to concentrate and just to get things done is sure. enormously valuable. Well, if you're task switching, that's the thing. If you're doing one, then, the, you know, you're alternating. That's where the pain comes from. Yeah. You just stop alternating. Yeah. But um, on the other hand, and it, 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 is, it is definitely important for programmers to, to sort of understand the, the, the customer mentality to a large extent. Absolutely. 
And that's, what the, uh, and that's what a good usability test is for. A good usability test is where you have a programmer and they build something and it's, it's obviously not usable, but you can't con- persuade the programmer of this. And so you, you purport to, to conduct a usability test in which you bring in paid actors who come in, attempt to use the software that the programmer has created and flail around in, you know, spastically. And you sit the programmer down and make them watch this happening. And the programmer says, ah! And then they go and they fix it and they make it better. Was that too cynical? No, I don't think so. So what you're proposing yeah. is just like periodic usability tests. I think that's yeah. good and that's, on... And that's a great place we get to bring the programmer in to watch. They don't have to prepare anything. You, you kind of, and that's what the managers do that insulate the programmers. They don't have to prepare the usability tests. They don't have to recruit the people. They don't have to arrange for the air conditioner to be on in the building on the weekend. They just have to, um, you know, they just have to show up and sit and watch some people try to use the software that they developed. And... Um, that's you know that's a great example of uh, you know so you, you isolate it you package it and not too much of it but you do want users uh, you do want programmers to have some sympathy for the users I guess user empathy it's called is that the term user empathy well it's not it's not so much user empathy is what I found is is being a programmer you're so close to the topic you're so close to the computer that you sort of forget what it's like for people who don't whose lives don't really revolve around computers like right. yours does. Right. Mine does. <laughs> and you just forget. It's not that you, you just can't put walk a mile in their shoes. It's literally impossible because you're just too biased. You're too, it's you the, know, you're um, too close. It's sort of like the curse of knowledge. Like once you know how something works, it's impossible for you to imagine not knowing it. Yeah, you know too much. I think yeah. that's a great look at it. But it, what I like about your proposal is that it also gives you usability testing, which is a huge – I mean that's a major step forward in a project. If you have actual usability testing mm-hmm. – I mean, I, I've worked on maybe one project that actually had that. So <laughs> if you could kill those two birds, if you could get you know, programmers to see actual users flailing around and struggling so they can appreciate how difficult it is for them, um, and two, actual usability testing of the thing you're building, that would be awesome. So actually, I, I kind of like your approach better than mine. Yeah. Uh, because doing a rotation you know, wouldn't give you usability testing. It sort of does. You, know, you, get the same, you get very similar information, although it's a little too late at that point. This is, the product is out there in the wild. But I right. think, you know what, sometimes you take a smart developer and you throw them in front of customers who are complaining about something, uh, they're very likely to actually invent the new feature that's the, the feature that you really want. You know, very quickly they're going to say, wait a minute, if we just had, um, you know, I remember the first time I actually had to go out and visit some customers. Awful. But, um, but I, I was all, I, actually I was kind of psyched because I was working for, on the Excel team. And I had to go to New York and visit, like, Wall Street customers. And I had a bunch of friends in New York. It was going to be this fun, exciting trip to New York. And I got to get a suit um, so that I could visit the Wall Street customers. And uh, um, what was kind of cool is almost everything they told me, I, like, sort of invented a new feature for Excel kind of on the spot. None of which ever got implemented. But some, but some of them were pretty neat. You, know, you, get, you get some really good ideas. Like, at some point, I realized that there was a problem with people sneaking into spreadsheets and changing numbers. Uh, you know, in, in Wall Street, that's a way you s- to steal. And, um, you know, change a formula somewhere or change a number. And so um, having, uh, it, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, Excel has this macro recorder and we actually have already built into Excel the capability to record every change that's made to a sheet. Like literally, like make a list of the changes and, and store that. Mm-hmm. And uh, it occurred to me that this could be turned into like an auditing feature um, very easily. I don't know if they ever implemented that feature. Um, but, but, you know, my theory was it would be like a special mode or a spreadsheet gets into this mode and you cannot open that spreadsheet without an audit trail. And, um, uh, that, that, that's the kind of thing where like they wouldn't have thought of that themselves because they didn't, re- you know, it takes a programmer to know that the macro recorder is al- is like an auditor in a right. sense and it's recording every change. Uh, and sometimes you put programmers in front of customers, they're able to invent features like that in ways that even the people that are supposed to have this job, the product managers or program managers or PMs or user interface designers or whatever you call them in your group, the systems analysts, may not figure that out. Like they may not realize that the, you know, they may not realize the leap between, you know, what code exists and what things can be implemented, how easily they can be implemented. So there's a, there's a lot of value to programmers spending time with customers, but not too much. At some point it becomes repetitive and you really want to, you know, you want to isolate it in time and, and allow them to spend most of their time developing right yeah 
I mean, you, you, you mocked it, but I do think both of the sort of extremes here are failure conditions where you have an ivory mm-hmm. tower situation where programmers mm-hmm. never see or talk to customers ever. That's clearly, in my mind, a failure mode. Yeah, like it's um, not allowed. Then on the other hand, if customers are directly calling your programmers and yeah. talking to them and interacting with them, that's a huge failure mode. Right. right? So you've got to be careful, and you mocked it, but I do think there right. is, there's ways to do this that can really make your product and your programmers a lot better. So it's a great question in that sense. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're thinking about this, you're, you're already on the right track, I think. There's so many projects, like, they don't even think about stuff like this. And there's lots of, uh, yeah. And there's lots of other things that you do definitely want to explicitly isolate your programmers from. And, and the, good, the good managers isolate their programmers from uh, office politics. They isolate their programmers from, you know, just mechanical day-to-day things that may come up. World of Warcraft, you want to keep that away from your programmers? Yeah, and Rock Band. <laughs> no, no, not Rock Band. You want What's the super-duper thing you can do in Rock Band where you play for 33 hours straight on hard and you win some achievement? Oh, you play, it's called the uh, oh God, Endless Set List. Yeah. Where you play every song in the game yes. without stopping. Yes. So, yeah, that's uh, the Endless Set List. So uh, props to the Fogbugs developers who did the Endless Set List, I believe, last Holy crap, Saturday. they did Set List on two? On hard, That's yeah. like 80-some songs, really. Yep. Wow. When did they do that? I think it was Saturday. Holy cow. I'm really impressed, actually. Yeah. We did that for one, but Rock Band 1 had like 50-some songs, so it's, it's like six hours of playing mm-hmm. on two. And are you wow. allowed to stop and take a bio break and stuff? You can. There's an extra achievement called Bladder of Steel if yeah. you don't, but it's, <laughs> it's just kind of cruel at that point. Well, right? I mean, I mean you, you can, can die, right? Stop. Isn't that like the, the, the warm hands on a hard body? What was that movie? I have no idea what you're talking about. Okay. There's this um, <laughs> hands, hard body. I know you think it's hands on a hard body, the documentary, 1997. It's a movie about an endurance competition in Texas where you had to hold, you had to touch a truck for oh, as long those as things. Oh, yeah. I know about those. And it really is, a, it really is all about like the bladder control and stuff like that or, or something. And, and I, I thought people do actually sometimes die. It's not a very healthy lifestyle. Uh, oh, boy. Just standing there touching something. I mean, playing rock band is, to me, much more engaging than just sitting there. Uh, it's just being a lump on a log. Oh, it's so boring. <sighs> Plus, the kind of people who have time to do that, it's just disturbing. It's like, oh, I'm just going to spend the next week touching something. <laughs> but anyway, congratulations to the, the Fog Creek team. Yeah, That's really, was, I wish I knew who it was. It was, it was at least Jacob and, and Braden and I here, the, the two co-ops and Jacob, and I think there might have been one yeah, other. I am suitably impressed, yeah. so, for what that's worth. Um, okay, wait, we got That a, was a great question. Let's uh, do another question. That's okay. I got an easy question that we... Um, Sinbad. Hi, this is Sinbad Carver from Columbia University. Carver. My question is for Jeff. I was wondering if you left any Easter eggs in the Stack Overflow site, and if not... What were some ones you're considering, but uh, you're unsure how Joel would take it? Thanks. What? E- Easter eggs. <laughs> What's an Easter egg? Easter I eggs. I swear to God, if there's an Easter egg in there, you are so fired. Uh, <laughs> I've Microsoft told the story does. On the yeah, Microsoft does. Supposedly, that's the word on the street. Is if you put an Easter egg in there without letting yeah. anyone know, you, it's fireable offense. Yeah, I know. It's which pathetic. I can sort of understand because yeah, Easter eggs, whatever. although they're fun and all, is nobody's ever know. died from a friggin' Easter egg. And they certainly have died because there weren't Easter eggs. So Easter eggs. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you there's a Stack Overflow question on this. That's that's I such bet, a I you know what? that is such a loser attitude of Microsoft that you're fired if there's an Easter egg in there. And you know what? And and I'm sorry. That's just like that's when Microsoft really started going downhill. Right. The first the first theory, according to uh, Dvorak, is that, that the problem started when when Bill Gates got hit in the face with a pie, <laughs> that green pie. <laughs> Right. Do you remember that? I don't want this to just be a repeat of Twit, but at that point, suddenly, all of a sudden, Bill Gates became realized that he just couldn't be a public personality. Like he couldn't, he couldn't like fly commercial and stuff like that. And just couldn't. I'm surprised it lasted that people. long. I mean, he's just he's one of the richest people in the world. It's just too difficult to. Yeah. Yeah. But but to me, the moment that 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 mentality ruled that putting a fun Easter egg into a product which cannot possibly harm the product is uh, a fireable offense that's that's the day that the life was was killed out of out of uh, out of uh, Microsoft 
I think that's a little bit unfair, a little bit harsh. Because um, I, I think if I was in charge of a project, I think I'm not necessarily anti-Easter egg, but it would have to be something we all agreed on. Like you can't have individual programmers randomly putting random code in the product. That scares me just a little, right? I mean, if we're all in agreement and say, okay, we're going to have this cool Easter egg that does this, yeah. and we're going to budget the time, and it's going, you know, that's fine. But just to have off individual programmers off in the woods doing stuff that's, who knows what? That seems defensible to me. But if it's a fun thing, remember these I, are I think fun. It things. has to be on everybody's radar. I, it can't be an individual cool. effort. I guess that's what I'm getting at. That's my attitude towards you, Easter eggs. So like if on the Stack Overflow team, Jared came to me and said, "I have a really good idea for an Easter egg. Here's here's what it is," and we budgeted time for it and said, "Okay, we're going to put it in at this time." Yeah, we all knew about it. That's fine, right? You but just it. Jared, yeah, off doing it by himself is scary. It is, but you would still laugh, right? It's all a matter of whether you have a sense of humor. It's the people that don't have a sense of humor that, A, deny that they don't have a sense of humor, and B, don't like Easter eggs. Well, I have another conceptual problem with Easter eggs, and that is that very few people will find them. I think if you're going to do something fun That's with true. your product, yeah. do it in a way that a lot more people will find it. I, I think it's... yeah. We have, have a few problems. We have the sleeping eggs. kiwi in Fogbug, so that's one thing that's it's kind of like an Easter egg. It's definitely sanctioned, and it's uh, something that enough people will find that you're going to, you know... Yeah, I found it, remember? Yeah. Yeah, I discovered that. And But I'd like to point out that I searched for the word Easter space egg in Stack Overflow Search, and the top two hits are oh. exactly what I wanted. I just want to point that out. What did you want? <laughs> uh the top one is, is it a good idea to put Easter eggs in applications? Oh. And then the one under it is, what Easter eggs have you placed in code? You know, I haven't so. seen Easter eggs in any web apps in ages. I think there probably are some. Let's look at the top one. Um, it's just a name. So this is just a name. That's not an Easter egg. This guy, this guy embedded his name as the, as a seed, as an encryption seed. So, like, as an encryption key, he uses his name as the encryption key. Okay, not impressed by that. I, I, you know what I'm impressed by? The 3D shooter that they had in Microsoft Excel 5.0. It was like a Doom clone. And, yeah, there's some uh, really good ones. There was a flight simulator in one version of Excel. That's some pretty freaking awesome Easter eggs. <laughs> Well, that's 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 what I'm saying. It's, it's like, like if you're going to do a really there. awesome Easter egg, that has to be budgeted in the project time. Uh, I, I think mm-hmm. my main objection is if you're going to do something cool with your product, do it so most people will experience it. I think it's just a bad. All right, but that I mean, wasn't the question. I believe the question. I know, was, but I know, but still, that that's my take on the question. So, is there one in? Uh, so you're saying there is no, there are no. No, there really aren't. Really? Uh, one we did discuss. I'll, I'll get. I'll give you one we discussed. How do you put Jared... it in a web app? It's sort of hard to. Well, <laughs> here's one that Jared thought that I thought was really funny. But again, how many people would find this, or how would you even know? Is uh, if you typed in uh, enough words that matched, you know that Pulp Fiction quote. Um, Samuel Jackson's character is always quoting that verse from the Bible. Yeah, <laughs> that one phrase. Like yeah. if you did enough of that, you would get a badge. Like the Pulp Fiction badge. <laughs> the Pulp Fiction badge. But, right, right. But yeah, yeah, again, that's what cool. Is it, it is cool, but no, what does it what? really encourage? People would find it, and then they would write posts containing words just to get the badge. And, and then it would be over. The, the, that's the, maybe, the, the, maybe the thing about Easter eggs is in the days before the internet, an Easter egg was like currency. If you found an Easter egg, you could, it was something you could share with people that was like, hey, try this cool thing. I'll bet you didn't know this. And then they would share it with other people. And it just every single time they did that, it was like a little gift that kept on giving for all of your top users to give to other users and to sort of spread around. Like, here's a little way to get some delight out of an application. You know, it's a little, it's a gift, like an Easter egg. And um, uh, so that's cool. But the trouble with the internet, though, is that either nobody finds it or it's just up on the big old Easter egg webpage and, like, everybody knows about it the next day. And right. that's sort of cool. Oh, you, we got a fantastic Easter egg in Copilot. <laughs> you know, Copilot. But you can't tell, right? No, I can tell you. Okay. Because there's nobody listening to this show, Jeff. You haven't realized yet. It's just you and me talking on the phone. I, sometimes I don't even record it. <laughs> you always record. I've learned. You used it against me, so I know that. <laughs> in Copilot, um, okay. So this one you only get if you've ever seen the movie Being John Malkovich. And Being John Malkovich is a movie in which people go into this hole that they found in an office and they slide down some kind of slippery tube. And when they get to the bottom, they're in John Malkovich's head. They're seeing what he sees. 
they're feeling what he feels. They don't control Great him. Great movie, by the way. Fantastic movie. Char- Charlie Kaufman? Yeah. Correct? Yes. Um, so at some point, John Malkovich, I'm, I'm spoiling a little bit here. At some point, he, he finds out. If you haven't seen this movie, please fast forward about 60 seconds on your iPod now because I'm going to give away something that is, is delightful when you see it in the movie. At some point, John Malkovich gets a little bit pissed off that these people are going into his head and paying for the honor, and he storms into the office where this is happening, and he jumps in himself. And when you're watching this, you're like, oh, my God, what's going to happen? How does John Malkovich go into his own head? <laughs> and he right. lands in a restaurant, which is just a room full of people that all look exactly like John Malkovich, who are all just Just saying, their heads, though. Wait, wait. Just their heads look like Malkovich. Yeah, their they're different bodies, oh. but their heads are all Malkovich. And they're all saying, Malkovich, 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 Malkovich. And everything they say is just the word Malkovich. Wait, wait. And the menus all say Malkovich. Malkovich, like Malkovich, Malkovich, Malkovich. Right. Everything, <laughs> every word in this place is Malkovich. So, the dog barks Malkovich. <laughs> so the co-pilot guys put in this, this feature that they discovered sometimes when you're testing with Copilot, you accidentally try to Copilot your own computer. Right. Like you're trying to remote control your own computer. Mm-hmm. And then you get this endless series of windows of the Copilot window shrinking smaller and smaller and smaller into the, into the distance. And the Malkovich feature is that if you do that, we change the titles on all the windows to say Malkovich. Oh, that's cool. That's really cool. Yeah. That's a good one. So, like so sometimes it's got to be like a like you know nobody would understand this and I don't know if people would find it but it's like telling the story of that little feature uh, of the yes. little Easter egg is like a little gift you can give people and you can show it to them you can sit down and say hey okay now try typing this into this box and now make that really small right yeah I I think it is different in the internet era you're right it is and also but, you know what the the the, uh, the era of Easter eggs came from early software was so predictable and so limited. Like you're running Lotus 1, 2, 3, and you got your 12 menus that you go to, and that's all you ever see is just these few menus. And it's, it's almost like you have this wrench in your toolbox and it's got eight things that it can do, you know, or a leather. And, and um, an Easter egg was like suddenly discovering that it has an additional feature that you never would have imagined. So there's a certain excitement to that extra feature. But the Internet is so friggin' infinite, you know? If you discovered suddenly some some new feature that was happened to be slightly amusing in Facebook, would you ever? You wouldn't be impressed at all. You'd be like, "There's eight million amusing features in Facebook that I don't use." That's a great point. I never really thought of it that way, but you're right. I mean, actual features are Easter eggs now. That's disturbing. Yeah, right? there's a lot of people like, put in a lot of people put fun fun features into their apps that, yeah. that in the old days might have been. You know, they're not quite 100 percent serious. Um, right. So, yeah. No, that's a great discussion. I'll definitely link the two uh, Stack Overflow topics as well. They're pretty good. I noticed there was a picture of John Skeet in his uh, robe here. <laughs> in this other Easter egg thread. I'm still trying to figure out what that's about, but it's funny. John so, Skeet yeah. in his robe? Yeah. It's in the, what it Easter the other egg. Question. Yeah. Oh, what yeah, Easter egg question. Good. Yeah, I'll link those in the show notes. That was another good question. You're right. That's a good question. <laughs> and he's got some boxes behind him, some Cisco boxes. Actually, what happens is when you get to 20,000 reputation, we send you that robe. It's a Stack Overflow robe. And John <laughs> that has could, earned that. That could be. That could be. Yeah, I think he's well on his way. There's That's another Easter egg where Stack Overflow only ever shows ads for bug tracking software that is not fog bugs when I'm looking at it. <laughs> John Skeet has 19 points. Let's see. Let's see. Are we even making money off of Axosoft, for example? Uh, sure. Okay, these are, good. These are At least they're getting their money. Yeah, they're paid. <laughs> I thought that was an Easter egg just for like you had the Fog Creek IP you, address. Well, you know, up. you could pay me to advertise your stuff here if you I want. I don't have to. <laughs> I have the superior product. I'm just kidding. Um yeah. Let's do another question. You said there were three. I yeah, there like were. Uh, there's uh, uh, oh, actually there's a uh, there's um there's more than three. How many Ooh. have we done so far? Two. Let's just do three, and then we'll do if we have time, we'll do another one at the end. Let me take an older one because I just want to get rid of this. Okay. Uh, this is from Derek. Hey guys, this is Derek in Canada. in Canada. I just heard you talking about bounty for answers, and Joel has written a bit about reward systems and how they don't really work and how they encourage people to game the system. Are you afraid that providing bounty for answers will lead to less people answering free questions? See, so it's another one of those. I get the dilemma between the this and the that. Thanks. And so we need to now resolve this dilemma. Um. <laughs> By somewhere in the middle, you think? Somewhere. 
I, I love it when people do that way. Maybe we're just going to go nuclear. We're just going to nuke the system from orbit. <laughs> we're just going to go extreme on this one. <laughs> All right, no bounties. You're right, Derek. No bounties. Uh, no. <laughs> the thing is, no, to be fair, we no, have we fun. have gone that route a few times. Like, remember we talked about voting against users. Remember? Yeah. And you were like, no, 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 that's a horrible idea. Don't do it. Oh yeah, yeah. And we yeah. didn't do it. Yeah, you know we didn't do any partial form of voting against users. Oh. There's no way to yeah, don't take it personally. make a complaint against a user on Stack Overflow. Right. And that's very much by design. So occasionally we do that. We decide, hey, we're not going to do it at all. Um, I, the, the, uh, 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 the, the, well, the reason I'm, I'm, I'm enjoying all these questions that are like, you know, in this article in 19, it's sort of like people, um, uh, you know, it's, it, it happens in the Talmud a lot where you just like, you've cleverly found a contradiction between something that Paul Krugman wrote in 1984 and something that he said on a talk show yesterday. <laughs> And you, you call, call up the talk show or the next talk show that Paul Krugman is on. He's a Nobel-winning economist who also writes opinion articles in the New York Times. And you say, Paul, in 1984, you wrote in a footnote to blah, 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 saying you said, you said X. And just now you said not X. So which is it? And I get a lot of email like that. Because I can't remember any of these things that I'm writing. And it's all just off the top of my head. None of it's... Serious. Well, just we stop contradicting yourself, man. Stop I mean, what's stop the contradicting? Heck? Yeah, uh, people want you to be a lot more consistent than you really are, and they have better memories than you think. And when and when they ask you these kinds of questions, you're like, "Wow, you're paying a lot closer attention than I am, or I wouldn't have made that mistake." <laughs> uh, Actually, I don't I don't view it as that contradictory a lot of times because true. Sometimes you don't usually have answer. these extreme opinions. It's somewhere in between, and it, it, the answer is you know always it depends, right? And it's all based on the circumstances. And a long time ago in a previous podcast, you talked about people writing you for advice. It's like, should I go to college? Should I go to graduate school? Mm-hmm. And you said, the problem is I don't know that person. I don't know all the context of their life, all the decisions they're going to make, all the, you know, there's so much context around that decision that you don't have, which means you, you're not really in a position to give them any advice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think when we write articles and stuff, always, there's always context around the articles, the time it was written, yeah. the, the specific things you were talking about at that time, that the, the situation that you personally were facing. You know, when you have opinions, they're, I think, obviously contextual. I don't think there's any absolutes except for maybe God and religion and stuff like that mm-hmm. when it comes to you know, opinions. And, I, I don't know. So uh, what was this question about? I've already forgotten. It was about bounty. Um, oh, yeah. yeah I, actually, I, actually, I actually kind of... I agree with him, which is why I wanted to play this. Just that I don't think we necess- um if if you allow people to pay a bounty or a tip for certain questions, mm-hmm. but yeah, like, won't that won't that take away from other questions getting answered? And won't eventually people just look for the? I think it's all in how you do it. And one thing that I've really pushed heavily for on this feature is that there's a sort of a nominal boost you can give it. Uh, where it's basically free reputation, but only after a certain period of time has passed. So you have to wait, which is going to already rule out a lot of the really impatient people. You have to be somewhat patient to even do this at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, t- a little bit of a rep boost that you'll get if you wait long enough and people don't answer your question to your satisfaction. Uh, the other thing I've pushed really hard for is any rep boost, any real rep boost you attach to this question, any bounty that you attach to it, is going to come from your own reputation. So you have to, A, have some reputation, and B, willing, be willing to slice off a piece of it and give to other people on Stack Overflow if they answer your question appropriately. So to me, that's the difference between the time delay plus you know, a, a big chunk of the reward coming from your own reputation are the two things that make this work, in my opinion. It sounds, uh, it sounds like um, there's not going to be, even though these bounties are here and it is a way to get a question looked at, is it, there's not going to be really enough of them offered that they're going to diverge, that, that they're going to suck off too much of the question answering capability. That's right. I mean, I, mean, they I think we want to make sure that they're be... not reducing, they're not reducing uh, the number of questions that get answered without a bounty. Right. Right. So we already have obviously huge rep inflation just by the nature of the system. And that's, that's okay. I don't really mind a system where everybody, it's like the stock market that always goes up. Mm-hmm. Who's going to really complain about that, right? <laughs> no, it can't always go up. It has Except to go the down. The price of bread goes up. At some point, that may mean that people get their questions answered. You can only get your questions answered if you already have huge reputation because there's just like everybody, all these people are offering thousand point bounties because they, they have can a still thousand. Get, but you can still get quite a bit of reputation from people voting on your answer, too, right? Yeah. No, but I mean, so, you have to get that. And at some point, it becomes impossible to get your question answered. 
doesn't it? Like the only people that can get their question answered are the. No, I think for a lot of people answering the question, just getting those immediate upvotes is. I think we need uh, Paul I'd... Krugman here. Actually, I think we need an economist. <laughs> we need an actual economist to look at this. Yeah. Market. Well, that said, I mean, you know, we don't actually know. I mean, part of it's experimentation. We're going to try our ideas of thinking how this is going to work. And then if it doesn't work well, we're going to obviously make adjustments. I mean, you remember mm-hmm. in our voting system, we made huge adjustments early on. Mm-hmm. So if, if it's not working, we'll adjust it. But we certainly don't want to create a situation where the only questions worth answering have bounties attached. That's not a right. situation we want to you know, encourage. So, what, um, One final note on this. We yeah. do feel very strongly about this feature because one of the repeating concerns with Stack Overflow is I can't get the right – I mean, people are mostly getting answers, but there's a small set of questions that people just can't get answered for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, and we, that's what we're trying to deal with here, the unusual, odd questions that just – the system isn't working very well for some reason. For every for yeah, there there is a, there is a small number of perpetually unanswered. That's right, and that's what this is designed for. This is not a mainstream feature. This is an unusual condition. Mm-hmm. So that's how so we know that, if it's working is if it's only being used on on certain cases. If it's not being used, if it if it starts right. working if, main, if it starts being used in a mainstream way, then that's we've right. Done it wrong. Exactly. What that's um, a good question. Yeah. Um, Oh, I got I got a new badge. I got a guru badge. <laughs> Isn't it exciting to get new badges? Yeah, uh, I logged on and it said you have guru. I don't know why I have guru. I mean, I know what it means. It means judged best answer and voted up forty times. Oh, I should be able to see that from my list of. Oh, finally, expression versus statement. How how does anybody even come go to that question anymore? Uh, that's the thing. There's a long tail here. People keep going to old questions. Is this like that's why there's also a lot of inflation in the system. Yeah, yeah, because because uh, just explaining what an expression is versus a statement, I guess, is a pretty simple and easy question. One of the things I'm noticing is that uh, um, the, uh, the there's a couple of these websites that we kind of hoped to obsolete when we started Stack Overflow, and I'm noticing that they still have questions um, on obsolete technologies that are not that the the, the if a t- technology is old enough, like say VB6, the mm-hmm. the the bulk of the knowledge about that is no longer in active <laughs> memory of any working developers. It's moved into the archives of sites like Experts Exchange and stuff. Uh, so I, I, what what I'm noticing is some of the questions I've actually been doing a little bit of VB6 to try to fix up the. Uh, don't even don't even ask. Don't even ask. But. Um, uh, and when I have a when, when I have a question or an issue with that, you know, I'm I'm hoping to find something that is a conversation from eight years ago, literally when when or, or twelve years ago, when this stuff was relevant technology. I don't think it was twelve years ago. I think that's a little the um, the copyright date on VB6. Wait, let me boot it up. The co- oh. Oh, oh, wow, we're booting up VB6 on this podcast. This is a new low for it, us. It boots in like a millisecond. The copyright date is. 1987 to 2000. So 2000. So uh, yeah, so it's at least eight years, eight nine years old. That's fair. So yeah, they're, they're, I'm really I'm not kidding when I'm saying it's like decade old technology, and so that stuff will probably never get backfilled into Stack Overflow. The, the, the really the, the obsolete technology, just like Experts Exchange doesn't have any COBOL information. You know, there's there's even older technology that's just not on the internet. Um, right. Uh, but that's okay. Um, so do we want to do favorite questions? Yeah, week? but I just rem- rem- was rem- reminded of something. Did you see that Mahalo is going to do a Q&A? Uh, oh, I did see that. Site? What? Jason Calacanis, yeah. Calacanis. Cala, well, I'm not working here anymore. Obligatory office space joke. This is the best podcast ever, by the way. It's really good. It's a really good one. What was the guy's name? He's trying to pronounce it. It's one of the employee's names. Oh, that is like the <laughs> like the grapes of wrath of our generation. That movie, it, it is. It's it like is. Really Streetcar Named Desire or something. It's all, it's all these quotes. Um, yes, <laughs> Jason Calacanis of Mahalo, which uh, I don't completely get, but basically it's um, it's a human powered search, which is lovely. It's- yeah. Horrible search engine optimization scam, in my opinion. You know what it is? You know what I think it is? It's like half... You know what You know what it is? It's better than those automatically generated landing pages. Like, those automatically generated landing pages 
you know, what you oh. land on when you have a typo or something. That's like saying you're better than, like, the plague. I right. mean, it's not really No, no, no. Great. What he's attempting to do is instead of having automatically generated landing pages, he's trying to make slightly better landing pages, and he's disguising it as kind of like, a, oh, it's just a, like a slightly better form of search, which it obviously will never be. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, anyway, horrible. without regards to I that. I don't want to talk about it anymore. It's horrible. I don't it, want to talk about it anymore. Okay. <laughs> well, I guess we're not fans. <laughs> not a fan. They are doing a Q&A thing, and what struck me about Jason's Q&A thing, it's not fair, I should have him on here and I should address this to him, is that he is very much like uh, a money guy. He's a very, he's what I call an econ 101 manager, uh, meaning mm-hmm. basic laws of supply and demand apply to everything. And if you just give somebody 30 cents, then they'll do something. And if they're not willing to do it for 30 cents, maybe they'll do it for 35 cents. And you want to pay them whatever the minimum amount is and, and little bounties and rewards and stuff like that. And, and, and it, it comes from a worldview almost that people are just motivated by money. And that's true. There are people that are motivated by money, and that's not a completely incorrect worldview. But, but, but I'm, I'm a believer that uh, – and Stack Overflow's philosophy is built on the fact that people want to do things even without the money. And in, and, and in a situation where somebody wants to do something, if you then offer to pay them for it, it's almost insulting. And, it, and they, they'll do it if the money is enough. But when the money stops being enough, they're going to lose the interest in doing that thing. So if I told you you can play you can play Rock Band 2.0 2. as much as you want, it, I'll give you a dollar twenty an hour to play it. Then you'll be like, hey, it's a fun game, and I get a dollar twenty. Okay, well that's free money, and you'll play it for a few hours, and eventually, you'll start thinking, I can't believe I'm doing this for a dollar twenty. I could I could be doing something else and making more more money somewhere else. And you'll forget that you enjoy doing the thing, <clears throat> or that you're intrinsically motivated to do it. And that's um, a speech that I give a lot. So there, there you go, Jason. If you're listening to this Stack Overflow along with the three other people from your electric sports racing car, what do they call those? Teslas. <laughs> the Tesla. Zooming around the streets of Santa Monica. <laughs> Coming up with new biz ideas. <laughs> I think that the mistake of Mahalo Q&A is that you're, gonna, you're, you're offering to pay people, and that's just not uh, um, make it free. And but wait, work. wait, Joel. You yeah. say this, and yet, and, and yet. yet. And yet. and yet, you pay people that work at Fog Creek. I sense a discontinuity here. <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> Maybe you could resolve this for me, Mr. Joel Spilkey. So, how did you get that so fast? Now, now I'm wondering uh, uh, a Mahalo answers. Oh, yeah, look, it's already coming up on uh, pays cash. Yeah. And it's like a tip-based thing where you give tips. And that, for some reason, this was what Weblogs Inc. was all about, like this, this idea that like if you just shuffle around small amounts of money enough, you're gonna, you can create – Economies where people will have incentives to do all kinds of things. Um, uh, the other thing, I, the other thing I think uh, strongly about answers is that you and I looked at a lot of these answer sites: Yahoo Answers, Google Answers, which failed. And I would actually argue that Google Answers failed because there was money involved, and Yahoo Answers succeeded because there was not money involved. Um, to the extent that it succeeded, it it is sad because Yahoo Answers that. is the quality is generally very very low, but yeah, it is kind of a success in the sense that I get a lot of organic hits to Yahoo Answers on just really random stuff. And every now and then, there'll be one that's sort of marginally useful. So It is kind of amazing how how rarely they answer your question. But, uh, you know, you get there, and this is like the number one thing for the question that you're looking for on Google, and there's somebody just not answering it. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I wish... Jason Calcane is the best with his new question and answer venture, but, but I kind of agree with you. Is like I don't think he really, I don't think he really gets the idea of how you create community. Like you create community by being a part of that community, and I don't think Jason Calcanis could be That's, you a part of any a community. Whole scandal with him trying to bribe people to he was he was like, well, the people that are generating the money for Dig are all doing it for free, so I'm going to pay them. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. This is a pattern with Jason. Yep. It he is. tried to it he is. tried to pay people to make Netscape.com be like Dig. Only he would pay the people that were gener- allegedly generating all this content, and it just did not work. And I'm sure he has some reason why some executive at AOL made this not work, and it has nothing to do with the fact that he's paying them people. But um, but uh, yeah, Dig is still around, and Netscape.com is not. So. Next question. Uh, we already had enough questions. Let's, should we do some uh, some of our favorite questions from the Stack Overflow website? Yes. yes. So let's talk about one. I have to talk about is the how old are you and how old were you when you started oh, coding? <laughs> you don't like that one. For two weeks, I went to uh, I went to Stack Overflow and it, it said, "How old are you?" 
<laughs> in that voice? Was it actually in that voice? How do you? Okay. That's Wait, this great. question is closed. It's closed and locked, actually. What does that mean? So, but you okay, can still so find closed, it. Okay, closed means no more answers will be accepted. Okay. Anybody with rep of I think three thousand or higher can close a question. Yeah. Um, locked is something only moderators can do right now, and lock means. Nobody can do anything with the question. You can't vote on it. You can't comment on it. You can't edit it. You can't favorite it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of a, a method of last resort. And the only reason I did that on this is because I kind of agreed with the comments that were posted here that this basically broke our hot algorithm pretty badly because it had so many answers. Yeah. I mean, it had <laughs> like two weeks. For two weeks, I got to Stack Overflow and it would just say, How old are you? Yeah. And I, I thought, What is this? Yeah, yeah. But to be fair, like, I really, I like this question because uh, if you sort by votes, you can see there's a bunch of stats. Like, it's an example of people using the system for things that we didn't really anticipate, but are still kind of cool, right? I mean, it's it's basically a survey for people on Stack Overflow to get a sense of, you know, what the other people in the community are like. When did they start programming? Um, yeah. You know, how old are they? And, and things like that. And that's fun. So I, I approve of it. And I also approve of people eventually saying, look, we don't want this to be Enough. Yeah. in the hot list permanently. Right. Because it has 1,207 answers. Yeah. And there's actually a Stack Overflow question where I document the algorithm we use. And one of the numerators, one of the, the divisors is essentially time. Um, and there's some adjustments to time for every time there's a new response, we subtract half of the time interval. Right. Mm-hmm. So the fact that it kept getting more answers, and there were twelve hundred of them, mm-hmm. was the reason this kind of would take a long time to go away. Eventually, it would have gone away. I think about a month yeah. from now. That's about but, right. I think I think uh, I, I think Reddit and Dig work on the assumption that something needs to be gone in a day or two, um, no matter how popular it was. Right. At some point, I mean, there's certainly tweaks die. we can do to that algorithm, <laughs> yeah. but I think this it was just really such an anomaly. Yeah. I mean, how many other questions do we have with 1,000 answers? None. I mean, that how many said, do we have with it does, uh, What did you think about the numbers? And, uh, I mean, if you look at uh, the statistics so see, for this. Uh, um, I, I, I've learned that I'm very old because yeah. I started in programming in like 80, gosh, 81, 82, 83, probably. Yeah. Um, I, and there's wow. very few people, <laughs> like 10, <laughs> not even. <laughs> yeah, I started programming in sixth to seventh grade, so 72. No, 77. Well, I, I don't count 75. my early, early stuff. I count, like, when I've got my first computer and, like, I really started to get crazy on the programming stuff. That would be early 80s for me. Yeah. Um, okay, so I would, I'm going to go with 78 for that for that one. Because I, I couldn't get a computer because they didn't sell them, but I could go down to the University of New Mexico Computing Center and log on to the mainframe using their interactive right. system call OS. And um, so that was 78, I think, 79. Yeah, you're right. right. That puts me before all of these people. Yep, you're old. You're wow. going to die soon. I have more experience Just, than any okay. of you. <laughs> so stop when you being said you snotty did, when in I the comments I did, on my website. You said I – remember in an earlier podcast you said, do you know any 52-year-old programmers? No, yeah, I do. I know you. This off. No, I'm <laughs> – wait a minute. No, I'm not. But that's the point <laughs> is that I'm only 43. Yeah. Okay. And, but there, you're right. There are not that many. There is a real sharp. You just do, you see this very very steady drop off from the peak in the mid 20s uh, of of current programmers uh, on Stack Overflow. And just look look at how many people started in like 95. I mean that's right. amazing. So there's a lot of there's a whole generation oh, yeah, of programmers. Yeah, that's true. There was that funny. There was that dot com generation there. But that, but that's yeah. just a function of their ages. I mean. What I look yeah, at, what I like to look at, is the fact that they started about at about age twenty three is where you peak, and then there's almost a straight line down, uh, with just fewer and fewer people still programming every year. It's not super right. straight, but um, but pretty consistent. People either get out and get into management, or they just don't have the. Um, I, I don't know what it is. I mean, it, maybe it's like math, and you just don't have the mental energy anymore, or uh, maybe it just sucks programming. I like programming, but maybe it's something that you're going to stop liking. Um, Hard to tell. It really does sort of sort of fizzle out. And then the age when people started is the other interesting thing because almost everyone who's I mean Stack Overflow I consider to be the elite of developers. I mean I consider them to be the, really the best developers in the world. And I'm not just being nice here, but that's because I've seen this <laughs> website. Um, right. And uh, uh, they all started. R- most of them started programming well before they got to college. 
Yes. Very few of them waited until they got to college. It's quite unusual to start programming when you learn. Because there's a peak at what, like 12? Yeah, there's this 13? huge peak at age 12. Yeah. And, no, that, and look that, at all that's these eight-year-olds, for me as too. Well. Yeah. yeah, that's not uh, – I don't, I don't think that's uh, – you know, some of them um, – some people must have been joking when they put in five or six here. But, but, but you know, I'm sure it's possible. And um, that's a really, really interesting thing about our field is that when we hire programmers fresh out of college, they have 10 years of experience, right. which is not true for almost any other – anybody else hiring people fresh out of college. And, you know so what that reminds the salaries me of? are so good out of college. To be a programmer. Well, you know what that reminds me of, though, is the old series of becoming a journeyman carpenter or something. It's like you mm-hmm. you start at a very young age working as an apprentice. and Yeah, which kind of happens, I, I really, right? Because think of, like think of the model. kids programming at home over 12. They're, they might be contributing to an open source program, or even if they're not, they're going to websites like Stack Overflow or, or comment, Comments or Usenet or whatever, and they are effectively learning from older programmers. Right. Just by reading Joel on software. It now, there's a whole like generation that. of programmers growing up around this stuff, which is, I mean, that's great. And, and hopefully they'll do it smarter than we did it. That's sort of my underlying goal. Yeah. <laughs> that they don't make all the same mistakes that we did, but they make all new, all exciting. All exciting new mistakes. New mistakes. I'll believe that when I, when I see it. All right. <laughs> so I, I did like that one, and I love what people did with it, like they have the graphs and the stats. And, you know, it's a great use of the system that I never, ever would have predicted. So right. I right. like that. That's pretty cool. Okay, I'm going to take that. I'm just going to do my top one. Should programmers be designers? With the advent of the web, most software is now geared towards that. I think that means the web. Wait, wait, wait. We've kind of talked about this before. You you picked one that's too similar to you. You have to pick a different one. Okay. What was your biggest CSI opener? What was the single thing you learned either in classes or during work that that felt most like the scales falling off your eyes? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Explain this question to me again. What is the single thing you learned, either in classes or during work, that felt most like scales falling off of your eyes? What was your biggest CSI opener? Oh, biggest CS, computer science eye opener. Yeah. Okay. Scales falling off your eyes. Yeah, I understand like, what, that. What was it like when you suddenly, sentence. like, you're like, oh, that's why okay. that works. Okay. I don't, I don't mean to get hung up in the, the sentence, but that's just it's a freaky sentence to me. But Yeah. <laughs> No, that's a great, I mean, for me, it was just, I love algorithms. I mean, I had a really good teacher, and we had the book of algorithms, which is still the same book. You can go to Amazon. I was surprised. Like, that's the book we used in college. Yeah, you know, it's embarrassing. I proofread that book. (laughs) Yeah. When I was in college, we had the the galley proofs for our algorithms class, um, because it was like our professor knew the professor was writing that, and it hadn't come out yet. I actually found a bug in the the red-black algorithm. In the early version, the not, the not printed version of the book. Just a typo, really. Right. Um, right. Wait, sorry. So, uh, you, for, you have well, to pick an algorithm. You have to pick one. And like trees, and trees are everywhere. And uh, Damien Katz, who develops CouchDB, yeah. had a blog entry just talking about trees. Everywhere you see trees, 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 trees. Like, and you know, he's working on uh, sure that uh, non-traditional database structure. But even then, it's you know, it's and trees are indexes, right? I mean, pretty much, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and a lot of these really fundamental concepts, um, big O notation, you know, how fast is it even possible to do it? Um, although I demonstrated a limited grasp of that with my whole NP complete post, sadly. But I love that class. And to me, it was, I think, the bedrock of a, of a lot of stuff we do is understanding big O notation and, you know, how trees work and why things are fast and why they can never be fast is really I love that. That was probably my single favorite class for sure. I think one of the things that um, – all right, so here's, here's the one that felt most like that. I'm going to take something really, really specific. And it's not the biggest thing that I, that I learned or the most important thing or anything like that. But this is the one that felt the most like, like, like well, my eyes were open suddenly and I was blind where I had been I, – I could see all of a sudden. And that was uh, – uh, there's a line in, in Kernahan and Ritchie when they're describing the C programming language and in C – um, to index into an array, let's say you want to get the fifth element of an array named A, you would write A, left square bracket, five, right square bracket. And Kernahan and Ritchie mentioned, oh, and by the way, you could also write five, left square bracket, A, right square bracket. And that would be exactly the same thing. And I thought, what? <laughs> That's exactly the same thing? How can that be? Is this some weird leftover syntax where you can put the array index on the outside you know, where you can put the array index on the inside of the square brackets and the array that you want after the square brackets. Like, what the heck is that? Right? It's just like the, the opposite syntax. And I just thought it was like a leftover. 
And then they said, this is because square brackets are just syntactic sugar for this other thing. And first of all, the whole idea of syntactic sugar was really cool, right? Where it's not adding mm-hmm. another feature to the language, really. It's just a syntax that you can use that makes things a little bit easier. Feels like a whole language feature, but really it's just a, a, a nifty syntax for, for an existing feature. And, uh, and then it was just the fact that array access is just pointer it's just syntactic sugar for pointer arithmetic and then i suddenly understood the whole pointer arithmetic thing and i I, I suddenly got it which is one of the reasons why i think everybody needs to learn c because just to see that all of a sudden many many things suddenly make sense until then you think of arrays as being some special thing that your language has to give you or you can't get any work done we're going to get into learning C now, aren't we? Yeah, we are. So that was the one that I can remember the most as being like a oh man, yeah, kind of kind of moment for me. Um, right. Um, but that you know, it's it's really kind of specific. Uh, my favorite my favorite pointer related observation was uh, I don't remember which classes it was it was a computer science class and we had you know these grad student TAs and this grad student TA was talking about pointers. He's like, yeah, it takes a long time for some people to understand pointers, and sometimes I feel like I still don't really understand them. <laughs> <laughs> and I just love the. Well, it was just, he was making a statement about humility. He didn't not yeah. understand pointers, but it was just great to hear somebody acknowledge how mind bending some of that stuff can be. Right? Yeah. You know, pointers that can point to anything that point to. Oh, yeah. It, it really. You know what? There's something about there's something about the mind the mind bendingness of it is the ability to think of things in two different layer two different levels of abstraction at the same time. And wasn't well, uh, the whole code as data okay, paradigm too? Um, I mean, you know what I mean, like. The code and the data are the same thing. Doesn't that kind of if if you take pointers, they're logical, well, extreme. Pointers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, it's just the idea that you have. Huh, I, I I I don't quite know how to explain what it is, but I I I have a lot of empirical evidence that uh, understanding pointers and recursion, those two things, and I I, I repeat myself here kind of endlessly, represent right. a an ability uh, to understand things at two levels at once, sort of, and it's kind of a mental agility that may be a built-in aptitude. You may have to be born with it, or maybe you can learn it. I don't care to express an opinion on that. But without this aptitude, you certain types of code that might otherwise be written elegantly, you will write in a clunky way. A lot of times, there's just an extremely elegant way to solve something. And the kind of people that don't have the ability to do pointers and recursions also always miss out on these elegant solutions to the problems, whatever the elegant solution may be. I don't know. I think elegance is kind of overrated. We're kind of at the end, so I don't want to get into it. But like, I view regular expressions as a very elegant way to deal with a lot of string-related problems. And a lot of people, of, um, just, a lot of people freak out though, and they, and they say, yeah. "Okay, it's totally unreadable." And and I can kind of see where they're coming from. I mean, you can make an argument for the really verbose, long. That, way I don't of think doing I, I don't think regular expressions are an example of elegance. Really? No. Nope. Wow, I do nope. for strings. I don't. Well, maybe elegance is in the eye of the beholder, then. No, I, to me, elegance is when you solve a problem in a way that appears to use less moving parts than you would think that you need to solve that problem. And a well, regular exactly. expression, no, hey, a regular wait, expression, wait, stop. Regular expression looks to me like you're solving a problem with the minimum number of parts that you should need to solve a problem. And that's respectable. It's like the minimum number of moving parts that you might need to solve this problem in a regular way. Do you think it's too far? Elegance is when you go even further and you you solve a problem with three steps that seems like it should need 16. So, for example, a classic, to me, a classic elegant solution, a a classic form of an elegant solution is where you need to do something and it's hard to tell how many times you have to do it because there's something kind of confusing. And the elegant solution is often, let's just do it all kinds of time. We'll just do it a hundred times and throw away some. Like an elegant solution is often like, let's work a little bit too hard and then throw away some of the work that we just did. And that has this elegance in that it, it may completely solve the problem. It may be easy to see what to throw away, but not easy to see. You know what I'm talking about? Like you need to get 99, so you do 100 minus 1. That to me is an elegant solution because the 100 is cheap and the minus 1 is cheap. Getting Ooh, the 99 wait, I, is kind of hard. We're going to go a little long, but we have to because I have to bring this up and I totally blame myself for not bringing this up. But... Um, the question, oh gosh, parameterizing a SQL in clause. This oh, is yeah, a good example fine. of your yeah. oddball solution. Yeah, that would. That's a, okay. That, it's not just oddball. That to me, that to me is is let's kind of an elegant solution. It's not that it, elegant it because it does fall down in the fa- in the face of it. The performance is not that great because percent right. like. Uh, all right, we should right. tell people what but, the question but I, is. But I agree because I liked it because I I never 
ever thought of it that way. Like I would never in a million years have come up with the solution that you came up with. Yeah. And I give you a lot of – that's why I accepted your answer because it was so Ooh. unusual. And it wasn't necessarily it down, the yeah. best, but it was the most unique. And I like that because I just would never have th- – you kind of did it backwards, right? Yeah. And I've cer- seen certain algorithms where they say, oh, no, look, do it backwards. And I just – I would never have thought to attack it from that direction. Um, my, mine is, and maybe that's yeah. what you're talking about. Well, this is the, – the, yes, this looks – it looks elegant because when you saw my solution, you probably didn't think there was enough code there to solve it. Right. Right? Like you look at the code and you're like, wait, how could that do what I need to do? There's not enough code. Right. There's not – everybody else has 14 lines of code and you're doing this with – one. One. Yep. <laughs> and that's, that to me, that is the hallmark of an elegant solution. And this one is a little bit weak because it has uh, pathetic performance, and the good elegant solution would also have decent performance. Excellent. But, uh, but that's, just a, that's just a coincidence of the way like is implemented on SQL. Right. You know? I just like it because it felt like I was exercising a different part of my brain when I read it and tried to figure out what it was doing. Okay. okay. I enjoyed that part of it. Let's so. take that as a canonical example since I invented it. I didn't really invent it. I do this all the time <laughs> all over the place. I use, this, I use this method all the time. Like in just, uh, you know, I use it in... I, I eventually learned this technique because uh, of years and years of VB script and VB coding where it's just a pain in the butt to make an array and pass it around. And so okay. lists are not really first class. And so you just don't – strings are. And so you just wind up throwing things in strings basically. I also want to point out this is another example of the Stack Overflow system at work because the answer I accepted only has two total. I know that people hate it in the comments. People don't like it. And the one under it, which is very traditional and totally works, and Mark Brackett did a great job with it, got 18 upvotes. So you have to balance what I thought was the best answer and my bias as the asker versus what the community thought was the best answer. So I like this on several levels because it works it shows how the system's supposed to work. It works exactly how we want it. And actually, the, yeah, I mean, and I would recommend using the accepted answer. Uh, sorry, I would recommend using the voted up answer, Mark Brackett's answer, um, in, in real code, unless you were absolutely certain that we're talking about tiny tables here and that you right. don't mind a table scan. And ultimately, the thing I implemented was Mark's algorithm. <laughs> yeah, because you are using, you don't want table scans. No, I don't. For sure. Definitely not. Um, so, yeah. And for, for all those who are listening, you may want to follow up. Uh, uh, we, we were just talking about – we didn't explain what the problem was really, and so that was just a random conversation. But um, you, will, you will get a lot of joy if you go to Stack Overflow and search for Jeff's question called Parameterizing a SQL in Clause number 33, uh, question number 337704. And uh, it will be linked to you from the show notes at blog.stackoverflow.com where you'll also find uh, links to uh, the wiki. Um, the Transcript Wiki, uh, which is a place where uh, volunteers from all over the world contribute by writing down um, these crazy things that we're saying here for the benefit of the hearing impaired. Um, also, if you have any comments or questions or anything you want us to talk about on the next show, you can call the Stack Overflow hotline um, by calling 646-826-3879 and uh, leave a message for us, and we'll play them on a future show if we, uh, if we have time. Um, or you can, what you can do if your computer has a microphone, just record an MP3 file or an Ogvorbis file and email it to podcast at stackoverflow.com. That's it. See you next week. See you next week. You've been listening to Stack Overflow with Jeff Atwood and Joel Spolsky. The Conversations Network is a 501c3 nonprofit, and we need your help. For a tax-deductible donation of as little as $5 per month, you can support this channel and the rest of the Conversations Network. So please visit conversationsnetwork.org to become a member and help us continue to bring our programs to the world for free. Our audio files are delivered by Limelight Networks, the high-performance content delivery network for digital media. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Joel Spolsky. Our website editor was Jeff Atwood. The series producer is Jeff Atwood. This is Phil Windley. I hope you'll join me next time for another great presentation from Stack Overflow here on IT Conversations.